Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit Welcome to Bullshift the Podcast. My name is John Dekuli. I'm the host of the podcast and the author of the book, Bullshift. This is the podcast where we talk about behavioral finance in general, and in particular, we focus on how the financial services industry shifts your attention to make you feel more bullish. We're coming to you a little bit late this week. We've had a bit of a challenge with my producer, but um, we're so very thankful that you could join us. My guest this week is Lauren Jeffrey. Lauren is the president of Point.Shift, which is a practice management company that helps financial advisors navigate complex financial relationships. And combining her 25 plus years of working within the wealth management space and education and psych degrees, Lauren also provides some pretty continuing education courses that teach advisors how to work with thoughts, attitudes, beliefs and emotions that come along with money management and investing. She's currently working on her doctoral degree, and that focuses on the KYC, which is the Know Your Client Form, How Advisors Know Their Clients. Warren, welcome. Thank you very much for having me, John. I always like to begin by asking the, the sort of set of question to make sure that everyone's on the same page. And a lot of people listening might not be familiar with the term KYC. So KYC in the industry talks about Know your client, mm-hmm. and it's, it's a regulatory obligation. Mm-hmm. And you uh, recently released a, a white paper. Here it is. Know your client differently. Uh, and a lot of the work that you do in the consulting and teaching uh, involves doing a better job of discovery with regards to knowing your client. Could you perhaps walk us through what that is and what that entails? So I have spent sort of 25 years of my life working within the compliance function within wealth management. And so the KYC always comes up, whether it's through a client complaint or whether it's a product selected. And so I was always fascinated with it because when I was teaching, I was teaching alongside the sales group and the sales group would always teach about product or how to build portfolios, but they never touched on the stuff that I was seeing in compliance which was client complaints and when there was a breakdown between advisors and their clients. Fast forward, um, I start my doctoral work, uh, sorry, my master's work in psychology and counseling, and I actually had terrible imposter syndrome. And my prof was challenging me to bring my current experience, my work experience, into my work as a mental health worker as a counselor. And it was a hard disconnect until I learned about the therapeutic alliance, which is something that we're taught right from the get-go as as psychotherapists. And that means we learn the biopsychosocial theory about how people think, live, and function within this world. And I thought, this sounds awfully familiar like the KYC. And financial advisors are supposed to understand 
know their clients so that they can make these huge decisions on behalf of their clients or recommendations. And that sort of twigged the whole exploring the KYC and how we could possibly be doing it better because I knew what advisors were doing and I knew what we were teaching our rookies and our, and our newbies coming in. I also know, because I'm old enough to have been in the business long enough to know how much it's changed. And, you know, for some of the older advisors, you know, getting to know their client was a handshake, a smile and a cup of coffee. But that's changed, obviously, for a lot of great reasons and some not so great reasons. But it remains a very core functional thing, because if you don't know how to know your client, how can you think or expect yourself to be able to create a financial plan and make recommendations for your client to help them achieve their goals, which really have nothing to do with what your goals are? It's almost a conflict. Let's see if we can turn the corner then and dovetail what you just said about knowing your client mm -hmm. with the drive theme of behavioral planning. Yeah, and a lot of uh, a lot of advisors will uh, as uh, as part of their job description is behavioral coaching, and that they help their clients navigate whatever decisions they need to make. And that, of course, presupposes that they know their client in the first place. Could you perhaps draw some distinctions between knowing your client and the fundamental precepts and presuppositions of behavioral finance? So behavioral finance really talks and looks at how humans act and react to not only their personal finances, but money at large. And I think we can all recognize that money is a really important factor in today's world, right? We're highly transactionalized. It's pay for play. Everything is monetized, right? And so it becomes inextricably linked. And, and so the behavioral finance part was great, but it it's almost like a top-down approach where we're trying to categorize, and this is where the biases come out, right? All the different biases that we speak about. And it's almost like trying to identify and, and categorize your client by whatever biases they hold. Because if you understand where their blind spots are, you can help navigate them through their financial journey. As a psychotherapist, when I look at behavioral finance and the objectives that you're trying to get to, it's kind of like we're squishing them into different boxes that kind of look like the KYC boxes. And what I'm proposing with my model of knowing, uh, knowing your client differently is that we start from the client and then we branch out. So instead of trying to identify and pigeonhole, let's take the client holistically and understand what that looks like. Just because your client may suffer from an optimism bias, uh, an optimism bias, bias, that if you don't know the context around it, you can't really work with it. And so with my company Point Shift, it really focuses on that liminal space between we need to understand where our clients' blind spots and biases are so that we can help them through. But if we don't know how to ask the questions and we don't understand in which those contexts sit, right, 
somebody may have this optimism bias, but their personal life is falling apart. And that's the hope that they have. But that doesn't translate into great money decisions. Right. So, I, I had, uh, as you mentioned before we got started taping, I, I have an article in this week's Global, Global Mail this week with regard to the way regulators are are struggling with this. And up until uh, about uh, two, uh, a year and year, speak, the KYC process involved uh, allocating percentages to stock bonds and cash. And now it, it works uh, in, in allocating toward low, medium, and high risk investments. I'm wondering what your thoughts are, because uh, in, in the article, I openly said, you know, I think this is a step forward, but it's a brave new world. Do you think moving from stocks, bonds, cash to low, medium, high will help advisors do a better job of, of understanding the clients and building better portfolios? No, I don't. Um, because there's all, and it, it goes back to this liminal space thing and concept. When we try and categorize people, we find best fits. And we do that. And when we work through working at a model, looking at a model, filling or speaking to the form is what I also referenced it as, that speaking to the form, your brain automatically shortcuts. You talk about it, you know, in, in a lot of your writings, you know, we make so many decisions in a day. And so inherently, as a financial advisor, you would be doing the same task day in and day out. So you get into kind of a habit and a routine. And so it becomes automatic. So that's problem number one. But we also know that our financial product landscape is changing because now we're getting into different product types, whether it's uh, ESG, halal, any of these number of different things they get different risk ratings, like some bonds. And if this is not true, please correct me. I heard from one of my uh, one of my contacts that some bonds can be deemed high risk now. Traditionally, bonds were low risk, low reward. That was like the granny safe space. But now it's almost like we're entering into this wild west of how we can create different financial products. So how they rate those products again, is against another arbitrary scale. We think that this is a high-risk high product because it is X, Y, and Z. But how do you account for a bond that is now high-risk, which we all know and associate with as being low-risk? And this now comes into, and my work also fo uh, focuses on the suitability and the KYP, and what due diligence advisors are or are not doing when they are then looking at products. So are they just shortcutting? All right. So just so for the people uh, listening, KYP is know your product, which is the flip side of what the uh, advisor obligation is. They not only have to know the, the life circumstances of their clients, but they have to understand all the bells and whistles of any product that they recommend to them. And they need to dovetail them. So I, I will confirm that, yes, uh, the new way of looking at things, this is if you have a long-term strip bond, it will be considered medium-high to high risk because of uh, it being sensitive to uh, changes in interest rates, whereas before it was just a bond was a bond, and it went in based on, it was rated based on its asset allocation rather than its risk profile. And as I say, that might be better 
but I think there are some risks associated with it too. I think we're mostly in agreement. Uh, mm -hmm. A lot of what I talk about is shifting uh, your, your your biases, and you uh, obviously in, in uh, point shift uh, talk a lot about uh, shift as well. So this is my big chance to ask you: What shift would you like to see in the financial services industry? Um, well, I think from an institutional on down, there's a huge shift required because it has been predominantly, you know, the a homogeneous group that has operated it, which has its own issues, but it's not catching up to the rate of what society is changing. So what do I want advisors to do? I want advisors to start being uh, respectfully curious in their clients' lives and start understanding their clients from a very different level. And unfortunately, that means engaging in difficult conversations or maybe asking questions that are awkward and embarrassing or or what we deem private or disrespectful, because that's where the good stuff lies. Because we don't have the same time horizons, because this is another issue that I'm looking at is time horizons. Well, in theory, I want to keep my money invested for, you know, 10 plus years, but my child is in rehab or I lost my job or so I think there needs to be more agility and less on time and and saving like there has to be a bit of a change because people need their money differently, need to access their money differently. They don't understand consequences. So advisors need to help um, their clients play the tape to the end. Yes, I can help you and give you this money, but recognize what this means to you in your life. And so maybe we need to look at structuring things differently. So we need to look at our clients differently. And I think we also, excuse me, we need to do the business differently because we know that the risk ratings are problematic. We know that pigeonholing people in categories is problematic because it's a very personal, personal thing, investing. It's very individualistic. It seems to me that what you're advocating uh, involves maybe a little more work or more granularity and more digging deeper on the part of the advisor. Uh, all else being equal, my sense is most people would rather make their money without doing extra work. So, so why would an advisor want to know their client differently as opposed to the way they know them currently? Well, I think there's a, a lot of reasons. So when we engage with our clients through a, the biopsychosocial lens, which is kind of the heart of my KYC D model, it, it automatically puts us in a place of, of viewing our clients' lives empathetically, which means then we ask different questions and we make different decisions because we inherently recognize that it's not our place, but this person is happy, sad, is in need of something. So we make better decisions, which means we reduce risk. So we mitigate and help remove client complaints. We have happier clients. When we start treating our clients like this, then you won't be able to get rid of them. And so therefore, you know, your book stays and it grows because then we get all this referral you will even have a better opportunity of, you know, keeping the money when parents or other elders pass on. 
because we have this whole big legacy piece and all of this big cash transitions happening. So keep it all in the family. And the way we do this is by engaging with our clients differently. So one of the things that comes up frequently, and my, my, my guest next week, uh, Sean Raymond, will be talking about the limitations of IPQs, investment policy questionnaires, trying to get a handle on the client's risk tolerance. There are limitations. And, and what I'm hearing you say, I think, is dig deeper, get to know clients better, uh, understand what makes them tick. And if you do that, um, will that help you get a better handle on their risk tolerance and their risk capacity? Or will it give you a similar understanding, but, but the empathy alone will, will get you some goodwill to help them stay on course and help the advisor do the behavioral coaching? So I think it can be everything. Um, but the first part is, you know, when we dig deeper, because there's professional judgment and IROC talks about that, right? When you're making recommendations, you apply your professional judgment. And so if you hear your client repeatedly talking about being stressed and being strapped and, and stretched and there's never enough, that should be telling you something that your client is struggling somewhere. And it might be as simple as asking a question. You know, you keep saying this word over and over again. Talk to me about what that means. And and so understanding a client's stressors and risk from this perspective is different than like, so on a scale of one to 10, would you jump off a cliff with a parachute? Um, and are you cool losing $20 million? Oh, but I'm still like there though. But in, in terms of uh, is the payoff, one of simply understanding better or payoff one of being and, and, and building more empathy in there or being able to do a better job uh, on the human side of coaching clients through, through whatever life throws at them or is the payoff one of doing a better job of diagnosis and getting a handle on their risk profile before you even invest in it or is it both i'm still staying with both because, uh, you know, I, and, and this is probably my bias as a, as a lifelong learner and educator, right? Knowledge is power. And when we know how to recognize and, and understand what makes people tick as opposed to assigning them something, we can then work with them differently because we know how to respond. We know what their response is going to be. So we know the questions to ask. So to find out what those triggers are, right? Because a lot of people are embarrassed about what happens in behind closed doors. And that's the stuff you guys need to know. It, it's funny because, uh, you know, you say you know the questions that you, that you need to ask. Could you perhaps weigh in on the idea of behavioral coaching with regards to its efficacy from the perspective of um, how much uh, how much is behavioral coaching actually changing behavior and how much is it just reminding people and encouraging people to do the things that they already know they need to do. They know they need to, to save for retirement. So if you call the clients at the end of February, where we are right now, and say, well, by the way, Mr. Jones, it would be really good to put another $10,000 into your RSP 
And um, you know, Ms. Smith, uh, if you if you got seven thousand dollars, you're in a low income bracket. Maybe you can put seven thousand dollars into your TFSA sometime this year. But the client, Mr. Jones and Ms. Smith, already know that. You know, they, I don't think you're really. This is not rocket science. So, how much of the behavioral coaching is just nudging people to do what they already need to do, and how much of it is getting them to do something that they might not have done had you not interested? So that's a tough question. So. Behavioral coaching is only as good as the person applying it. And that means being consistent and doing it all the time. And so there's a huge drop-off rate with that. And especially when you over when you encounter the same kind of thing over time. Mr. Jones, hi, it's February. We talked about the 10 grand. Am I gonna see a check? Really suggest it, you know. And you don't see the 10 grand. So we know that you can't make anyone do anything. However, if you know Mr. Jones a little differently, you understand that he has been struggling, right? So it's not necessarily about a job loss. Maybe he was constructively dismissed and he's earning less and he's embarrassed to tell somebody. We know that men in particular are, are sorely underserved and and really struggle with their mental health and and being open and honest about things. So when you're going and approaching your client if you have a better idea of the family and the personal side of things, you can say, you know, I hear you Mr. Jones, you know, do you have the 10 grand? If you don't, I get it. Cuz we're going to keep on track and we're going to look at it again and we're going to revisit these things when life is a bit calmer. Okay, so let's say Mr. Jones is not going through the situation. And okay. the situation is essentially unchanged from uh, last year or, or six months ago or the last time the advisor and the and Mr. Jones spoke. And, and the advisor says, Mr. Jones, uh, we've only got a week left in RSP season, uh, TikTok, uh, how much how much can an advisor actually get Mr. Jones to change his behavior, to open his checkbook, and to, and to put that $10,000 into his RSP, uh, as if, if, especially if Mr. Jones, for whatever reason, just decided he was going to go on a cruise instead? Um, can, you, can you maybe get a sense of quantifying the advisor's capacity to move the needle on a, on a household basis? In order for somebody to give up money when life is good, or there's no issues is challenging. Making anybody do anything is challenging. And so this is when the knowing the client differently and understand, like it, it goes to understanding what their core thoughts, beliefs, and values are when it comes to money and investing. And if they want to blow that 10 grand and it's not going to move the dial, if they're going to spend that money and it's not going to move the dial, or it's not going to negatively impact them, you probably have little influence unless you can make a compelling story, agreement, or case for that investment. And the only way you're going to do that is by understanding because you're going to be asking the questions about work, life, you know, relationships, personal things. Because Let's not be disingenuous. Everybody has something. And it's just how good are you at finding out that information? 
and and can you ask the questions to find the answers? It, it's almost like I'm hearing you say say that advisors should be like Columbo. You know, before they leave, they come back and they, they scratch their head and they turn and they say, oh, you know, one last question, and and they and they, they keep on coming back trying to unearth the the real reason behind why that check isn't being written or the real reason why that insurance policy isn't being or what have you. Uh, would that be a fair depiction? Uh, I think it's a fabulous depiction as a Columbo fan. So, um, okay. but yes, and but this also goes and speaks to what also the regulators want. The regulators expect us, or sorry, the advisor, to be always knowing their client. So they say every three years, you've got to do a full KYC update, which I think is crazy because life happens so fast today. But every time you're making a trade, you're you're you should be doing that mini KYC as part of your due diligence, right? Because CFR expects advisors to sort of figure out is it good for them today? In your head and in your plan, you're like, yeah, I know this is gonna pay off for them in 20 years, but you know, they're living in their car. Right. Just so I just want to make sure everyone understands the lingo. So CFR is applying focus reforms, which Thank were you. brought in uh, 14 months ago. So, so the new the new industry regulatory framework uh, requires that. And I should also point out that if you're a portfolio manager, because I happen to be a portfolio manager in my day job, I actually have to update the KYC every 12 months. So every year you need to uh, sit down with your clients and update their situation to see if there's been any kind of real change in their circumstances. So the industry is um, moving perhaps toward, again, toward a, a situation where a more timely, uh, check in with regard to has any mm. Mr. Jones is is becoming more of a standard, and that's especially true for portfolio managers. A because portfolio managers are fiduciaries, and B because portfolio managers might be making changes in the client's mm -hmm. portfolio that might not, not even realize. So there's more of a more of a, a of a notice on the on the portfolio manager to make sure that uh, the the advice being given and the steps being taken are are still consistent and and uh, compliant with the uh, the client's circumstances. All right, let's see if we can wrap this up. Uh, I always like to finish with uh, two things. The first is, that's bullshit. If it was up to you, Lauren, what would you change in the way the financial services industry operates? Emphasis on technology. And we're, we are pushing technology for all the wrong reasons. And so while the regulators are saying, well, we need to spend more time with our clients, the dealers in the head office and and just seems to be this technology push. Let's get more business done. Let's make it, I, I agree on the make it simpler, but it's all the focus on speed and turnover. It's that transactional nature again. And while you as financial advisors do transactions on behalf of your clients, the relationship with your clients isn't transactional. And I think that has been lost and that needs to come back. All right, so then that brings us to the second half, which is shift happens. And you're you're at point shift, and so you're also interested in shifting the industry. Yes. If it was up to you, how yep. would you shift the industry to deal with this, this over-reliance on technology? I can't believe I'm going to say this, but I think this is where um, machine learning and AI can help us. Because if that if we can harness those tools to help us quantify or 
like we're having this conversation, there's an AI bot running and it's collecting all of this data, this biopsychosocial data plus, 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 you know, and help sort of say to the advisor, these are the things that I heard that are red flags or things you need to consider. That would be much more, that would be a shift I would be much more apt to get behind than as opposed to let's just jam more business through and, you know, take this questionnaire because this questionnaire is going to automatically default to who you are and what you invest in as an investor. Like that, that kind of modeling. And I think if we can get the individuality, that would be ideal. It's almost as though what you're talking about is a bit of a cyborg solution where if you can get artificial intelligence to eavesdrop on the conversation, it might assist the advisor to flag, to ask better psychosocial questions and probe further to, to solve all the problems that, that you're talking about, you know, life being in a way that you, you know, mentioned over the course of uh, this discussion. Yes, and I can't believe I said that. Um, and, and, I, and I honestly feel a little dirty. I'm not going to lie to you. Um, but... Well, because so he, you know, as a psychotherapist, I'm really, really concerned about humanity, right? We have lost the art of conversation. We, you know, struggle to be together without conflict, right? And and so technology, as much as it's a great enabler, it's a great divider as well. And so I struggle with that question, but thank you for asking it nonetheless. Lauren, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a, a real pleasure, and, and I, I'm really fascinated by your, insult, your insights. So we'll, uh, we'll be conversing over time, I'm sure. Thank you very much. Have a good day. John DeGuey is a portfolio manager in Toronto and the author of the book Bullshift, How Optimism Bias Threatens Your Finances. Bullshift is available online and in bookstores everywhere. The opinions expressed in this podcast should not be construed as investment advice. Bullshit, the podcast, is produced by TalkShoe, a division of IOTAM. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.